um, my dad passed away and the, uh, of agent orange, uh, of cancer spurred by his exposure to agent orange during his deployment. And the day he died, um, I was here in Los Angeles and it just felt wrong to spend the day like any other day. And I felt this kind of overwhelming urge to be out on a river and fishing. My dad had taught me to fish. I'm, I'm from the Western suburbs of Chicago. And so I drove up into the mountains of the Southern Sierra Nevadas and I had the radio going and on the way, I wasn't really listening to it, but the Springsteen song came on called Galveston Bay. Mm -hmm. And it, and it's about a, it's about a, a young Vietnamese refugee who's trying to rebuild his life in Texas after the fall of Saigon as a shrimper. And before he understands what's happening, he's embroiled in this fight with the Ku Klux Klan. And it was such a strange premise for a song that it kind of kept popping into my head that day and over the coming weeks. And, and, but I thought it was not true uh, until I started investigating and that, that, song of Springsteen's kicked off a, a multi-year investigation with hundreds of interviews, thousands of hours of sitting with all the people in the story. And, and that's what led to the fisherman and the dragon. And we should tell people that are listening in who don't, don't know this story, don't know the, perhaps the song, um, that this, this, this is a heavy, and it's sort of really, I know it dates back to, to a time, well, of the Vietnam War, but then, then shortly thereafter. But it, Vietnamese folks, um, both the, on the U.S. side and on Vietnamese side, are, are heavily involved in the story. Yes, that's right. And uh, you know, they—it's a—I mean, it's a fascinating situation because you know, it's crazy that we have to kind of restate this. But nobody wants to become a refugee. Right. If given the choice, they would have quite happily stayed in their home country, but their their country vanished. And many of the first wave of Vietnamese that were brought out were those that had worked alongside us. And so they they end up in Texas during a time of high inflation. It's a crummy economy. Gas prices are super high. And the fishermen, the whites that traditionally kind of dominated this industry were frustrated because their nets kept coming up light that the catch was 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 pretty weak for a few years there's a lot of reasons behind that maybe that the petrochemical industry was spoiling all those bays and dumping all this toxic stuff in there but when the vietnamese got there they were very happy because they it was an opportunity for them to unload all of these decrepit boats on the refugees oftentimes at five or ten times the true value Mm -hmm. they were playing the refugees for suckers, but the, but the Vietnamese did everything right. They fixed those boats up. They used their family members as deckhands. They, what white people consider junk fish in order to cut down on costs. They loaned each other money when the banks wouldn't give them credit. And within a few years, they became such good fishermen that the whites frankly out and they ran to the Texas governor and they begged for a ban on refugees. And when that failed, the Klan came in uh, and joined the, joined the fight. Lewis Beams, and again, I'm talking about the Klansmen here. If you want to hold on to this country, you're going to have to shed some of your blood. 
you know, when I was reading some of these things, and he said these back in the 70s, in this, during this time, it, rem- it was reminiscent of some of today's rhetoric that we're hearing with, with uh, various groups, military groups, and that sort of thing. Was, was that, did that occur to you as, you as you went through this? Oh, yeah, without question. The, you know, the, part of the reason why the book has the title that it has was I, I wanted to kind of evoke like a parable that, yeah, this all happened in a, a, you know, a town you've never heard of on the Texas coast in the late seventies, early eighties, but, but the forces behind it and what, what it teaches us is applicable to any town, any industry in America that, um, you know, you mentioned Lewis Beam. I mean, that when I was going through all of these, you know, I, I read more, white supremacist literature than I ever wanted to while I was doing the research for this book. Um, but, you know, on you read these newsletters from back then where they're castigating the, the, the Vietnamese shrimpers and on the next column over, the next article over are schematics on how to build the American wall. And this is from 1981. And all it's, you know, diagrams of how you can electrify the wall to keep immigrants out. The, 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 the story here is really at the heart of it is about who gets to be an American, who, who gets a piece of the American pie. What, what do we owe those fleeing these disastrous wars of our own making? And, and also because this becomes an environmental story kind of in an unexpected way, it's, it's about, this age-old question of how much of our natural resources and our environment do we sacrifice up front in exchange for some short-term jobs that may end up killing those who who take that those jobs i mean this coastline is called the cancer belt people there have 160 times the cancer rate the rest of the country it got so bad it got to the point where i could tell who worked at what plants based on the type of cancer that they had Wow. Um, so, you know, it, it's a, it's a story about a group of people confronting things changing. They felt that the world was changing too quickly and they, they, they condemned the, the wrong people. They pointed to the wrong mm-hmm. source of their problems. They, they, in the midst of all of these huge structural changes that were kind of killing off the way of, of fishing that Texas coastline, like the petrochemical industry, they, they just looked at this tiny number of refugees and they said, let's get rid of them and everything will be great again. Yeah. Overlooking you know, everything else that's going on. Um, yeah. You, you, in your book, we're talking with Kirk Wallace Johnson, but you know, you feel so bad for the Gulf of Mexico just when you when you're done with this book, you feel like, my God, what what is this body of water? What more can it take? Because you you all this dumping and this and oil and uh, you know just the chemicals, uh, and then then we're going in there and fishing. You know, it's almost like what is going on? Uh, it's it's just as you say, it's it's a story that of our time and and of the conflict that we face. Yes, you know, and I mean, I, I went down to Texas so many times just for the purpose of going out on a on a trawler to to do some shrimping just so i could understand it better and every time i went down 
the plans were were scotched because of some new you know explosion at a chemical plant that had fouled fouled galveston bay or a tanker collision i mean it started to feel like some kind of sick joke but when you when you when you do the research when you see what's happening to these bays not just by accident but but by plan that that these are these plants are all there because of big wigs and senators that entice them with tax abatements and and you know all kinds of incentives to to basically destroy that coastline uh, and the people who live there. Um, it's it's a it is a kind of devastating story. And Kirk, is it is it you know as we look at it in, in twenty twenty two, those factories, those companies still pumping away down there, or what's the present status? Oh yeah, they're they're going strong. They're making plans for expansions. And, you know, the the heroine of the book, um, this incredible woman, she was the sole female shrimper on that coastline. She was the only one that that really could properly identify the plants as the threat. Um, I mean, she was just arrested recently because she's trying to uh, prevent the dredging of, of a bay in her in her hometown. Um, and so, you know, she's 74. She's given everything in her life to try to keep, keep these bays from, from being utterly lost. And, and she's, she's still in the fight. You, you mentioned in that book, we're talking about Diane Wilson, the uh, really one of the heroes, big heroes. And as you mentioned, the lone wolf in, in sort of saying, Hey, let's, let's, you know, let's finger the, the real uh, culprits here in terms of what's poisoning the water. Uh, that she won a big suit, millions of dollars, but yet she still loves off, lives off her social security. Um, did she just forego the money or is that not coming or what, what's the story on that? No, she, she, she just, she didn't want the money for herself. You know, so many people in town think that she's a multimillionaire now, but I can attest that, that she's not, she lives on 425 bucks a month from social security. And but she's, you know, largely in charge of around 50 million um, uh, of, of a fund that is meant to revive this industry and to clean up the bays and to rebuild the, the kind of shrimping and crabbing infrastructure that just withered away over the decades. And so now she she's kind of the last best hope that these shrimpers, whether they're white or Vietnamese, have. And is shrimping just on a now just a, a shadow of what it was earlier in the in the seventies and eighties? Yes, uh, for, there's you know there's two types of shrimping. There's Gulf shrimping where they you know go out for a month at a time into the deep Gulf, and then there's bay shrimping. Bay shrimping is is barely even a shadow at this point of what it once was. Gulf shrimping is also you know profoundly diminished at this point in large part because the trump administration you know throttled the h2b visa program which is a short-term skilled worker program and so we used to have mexicans and guatemalans that would would come up with visas for the shrimping season and go out on these boats it's hard work 
And the thinking was, oh, let's just kill this program and white people will take those jobs, but they can't find anyone to do it. So a lot of those, those golf trawlers are just, you know, tied up at docks right now. Hmm. That's right. We're talking with Kirk Wallace Johnson, author of the book, The Fisherman and the Dragon. Um, one last thing, uh, Kirk, you know, you, you, you did a remarkable job kind of these characters that, that I described and Morris Dees, I think, got in a little bit of trouble later in life, um, you know, but we, I, I don't know if we need to dwell on that considering his good works. Um, but for the most part, uh, wh where did where did Beam wind up? Is he still with us or what's what's going on with the the Klansman? Beam is is still alive. Um, he professes to be uh, dying of of cancer from Agent Orange as well. Although, um, you know, I, I, he's been saying that for, I think, 20 years or so. That's yeah. not to not to mock that or anything. Um, but right. he kind of he kind of receded from a leading role in the white white power movement but he is still routinely cited as inspiration by this new generation of of right wing uh, i mean many of them are just straight up terrorists um you know he's not uh he he and i spoke i think the first time he's spoken about this but he you know was pushing some frankly delusional stuff um mm -hmm about about what was behind this so this is not a a man that's repentant or has changed his his worldview as best as i can tell yeah and, and and what i got from your book was this was a guy and i'm talking about back in the day when he was uh kind of fomenting the uh insurrection you guess you could say there among the fish the white fishermen i mean he was very outspoken i mean he loved a, a crowd of, of reporters around him uh, I, I think you went after the judge, who uh, a black woman who was a federal judge. I mean, I think you have a quote in there, a negress masquerading as a federal judge. He said this in public. Um, yeah. You know, so. yeah, I mean, the, the catalog of the horrendous stuff that this guy said was, was just, I mean, at some point I had to, yeah. you know, decide what what was too much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. Exactly. And, and, and again, one last thing. It's so reminiscent of today. We won't mention any names. We don't have to. But it's like if you're going to be out there and say everything and, you know, pretend to be, you know, like you have a cause, um, I guess some people believe it. You know, I guess that's the, the nature of things. Well, Kirk. Yep, that's right. We thank you so much. So again, the last, last note of the Fisherman and the Dragon. Oh, thank you so much for having me.